0: Hi, it's Chris. Three items before we begin. First, don't forget to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It brightens your Sunday afternoon with backstories, show notes, extra questions with guests, and more. This week's bonus question for Brian Abrams? Based on the conversations for his extraordinary book, Obama and Oral History, what would he want to ask President Obama now? You can sign up at chrisreback.com. Next, if you like the podcast and the newsletter... How about becoming a member of Chris Reback's Conversations? Members get exclusive early access to select podcasts before wider release, like my recent live podcast. You also get invitations to submit questions for upcoming podcast guests. Other benefits will be added, and we offer two tiers of membership, patron and superstar. Choose the one that's right for you at chrisreback.com slash membership. Third, merch is back. The Blue Wave t shirt was so popular that in partnership with Political Wire, we've brought it back this time as a mug. Donkey, surfboard, and different colors to choose from. So if you missed the shirt or got the shirt and realize you need the matching mug to complete your look, now's your chance. Check them out at politicalwire.com slash Blue Wave mug. Thanks, and now let's get to the podcast. I'm Chris Freeback. This is Political Wire Conversations. It feels like a lifetime ago, I know, but so much of what's happening today, the divides, anger, insults, policy realities, have emerged as a reaction to the Obama years. To understand today, it helps to understand what came before. Brian Abrams makes an important contribution to the process. Abrams specializes in oral histories, talking with key players and letting their words almost exclusively tell the story. He's done it with Hollywood, comedy, and media, and now he's turned to politics. Done well, this approach requires insightful questions that deliver revealing responses, which are then edited seamlessly into a thoughtful narrative. That's exactly what Abrams did in his new book, Obama and Oral History. It's a rare opportunity to relive and understand the Obama years from the inside. Brian talked with many of the key players, Democrats and Republicans. He joined me for a terrific conversation, just what you'd expect from a great storyteller. I really think you'll like it. Before we begin, though, I want to remind you about our show's excellent sponsor, the Cook Political Report. People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. Okay, that's it. Here's our look inside the Obama years and my conversation with Brian Abrams. Brian, thanks for joining. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. So first, how how'd you pull this off? A hundred <laughs> plus alumni from the White House, Congress, Justice, State, Democrats, Republicans. How would you do it?
1: Uh, it was impossible i still I still wonder that uh, uh, today um, there There really was a strategy, but you know at, at the beginning, i mean I had nobody i didn 't have sources cultivated in, in d c for this sort of project. Um, so like previous oral histories i 've done, I worked from the outside in. And, uh, you know, you begin – I suppose like any story you try to build or any sort of world that you try to penetrate, um, you begin with, in this case, the junior White House aides, right? And then maybe you find some mid-size uh, – or mid-level, excuse me, uh, campaign strategists, and then you find some aides in the Senate, and eventually you start building these constraints, concentric, concentric circles where – uh, you 've spoken to enough people in the Massachusetts political arena to where for you to approach Scott Brown and Martha Coakley to get their reminiscence on the Senate special election for Teddy Kennedy after his death for that seat in, uh, what was that, 2009, 2010. I mean, I'm just sort of painting like what a vast picture this can be uh, and and how much work it's just to build up like that one one little corner of this like giant tapestry so that seven months, eight months down the line, say you have 65 sources in the bag and 19 times Rahm Emanuel's name's been mentioned, you have enough underneath you where you can call uh, the mayor's office in Chicago and say, hey – Uh, you know, does Ron have 10 minutes? And then from there, two months later, you get 17 minutes, you know?
0: (laughs) Right, because these 65 people have talked to me and mentioned his name, and if he just gave me 10 to 17 minutes, I'd be incredibly grateful.
1: Something like that. I mean, I think it's two parts. It's like, number one, nobody knows who I am. And even if they did, why are they talking to me? Uh, Why open your mouth about, you know, someone who's, Looking to report on the years of experiences at your workplace—good, bad, and ugly—when uh, you don't have to, because generally speaking, it's sort of best just to keep your mouth shut and go about your business. Yeah. Unless you truly are someone who is just starved for attention, and there's definitely a few of those out there, but uh, but that's being really cynical about it. I mean, there are people who are more than happy to talk because they, you know, they go to bed with a. Clean conscience, whatever. Um, but in the case of Rom, going from ten minutes to seventeen minutes is generally because you want to ask a complicated question uh, when you know that ten minutes is about to get up. When it reaches that eight-minute mark, you can squeeze in something that keeps them on the line for twice as long.
0: And, and so, what, what was the time frame? So, Obama, the you know, Trump's inauguration, obviously January twentieth, two thousand seventeen. When did you start? making calls when did you decide you wanted to do this when did you start making calls and did people want to talk or were they like look man this is just too hard you know can you call me in a few years happy to do it then
1: (laughs) so i got the contract from the publisher in the spring of 2016 uh, 2015
0: 2015 2015 so 2016. Okay, so so the the campaign is underway. You know, uh, I guess at that point, at that point, actually, a Democratic candidate is not um, confirmed, right? It's still Hillary and Bernie in spring of 2016, I think. And I mean, you already yeah. had the vision that you wanted to do this book
1: by this point. Uh, Trump and Hillary were, you know, all but. You know, they were virtually the nominees at this okay. point. Okay. Uh, this was after Super Tuesday. It was pretty much a done deal, but you still had Bernie dragging it out on yeah. the Dem side. And then yeah. I believe Trump was still facing Kasich and Cruz and maybe someone else. But uh, I can't remember who the other one was right now. But um, the, you know, certainly the idea then, everyone thought that, you know, Hillary would have it in the bag. Uh, I mean, everyone thought that up until 9 o'clock on November 8th. Yeah. Um, So this was a project that was motivated, um, for me anyways, because I had done three previous oral histories on pop culture-related subjects, and they were, and just to name them, Die Hard, Gawker, and the NBC years of David Letterman, and all three of those subjects, you know, it can easily be argued as like monster influences in their respective industries, in on culture, but I, I really wanted to do some super heavy lifting after those. And, you know, the world of politics and, and government is just so vast that uh, I knew it was sort of beyond my reach and I wanted that challenge. Uh, I also needed the paycheck, but uh, but we sort of, yeah, I just sort of dug right in and began my first interview June 2016. I think my last interview for it. Was the fall of 2017? So, um, just one thing I'll say, and then I'll hand it back to you. I know my answers are
0: really long. Yeah, but. no, no, no. It's it's, it's interesting in, in understanding the process because it, the, it's a it's an incredible tapestry. I mean, and I guess that's among the skills. And I, you know, in oral history, obviously um, a, a different format than a pure history. But you, you've got to not only obviously create your interviews create them over a period of time you know create the questions get out what you need but in the time frame that lengthy time frame that, that you're talking about doing those interviews you then don't connect them with your own prose the way a a you know a, a david mccullough or uh, ron cherno does you are connecting them by going through all of the interviews themselves and trying to find the connections within the words that you may have heard at some point over the last 17 months so no please tell me you know go go through what you're doing or how you did it because um that tapestry that you well i mean that's the power of an oral history and it's the power of what you've presented
1: yeah I mean you know say tapestry I, I always yeah I think of it as like a jigsaw puzzle, i mean as you mentioned, like obtaining the interviews and the sort of politics and strategy in in making that happen is its own battle uh and then of course, conducting the interviews and making sure you're you don't completely whiff it uh hopefully you know you build enough relationship with people where you can go back and do follow ups which happened with more than half of these people but um but when you talk about the actual assembly of of the book um that yes, I mean the majority of the book is you're essentially reading quote after quote after quote it's um I think there's eleven chapters, and you do have a narrator, you have me like in prose text kind of set it up,
0: yeah, you know, the context timed. of the chapter yes
1: but i but I did think of like I say jigsaw puzzle, here's another metaphor for you, like cheesy as of a b um it I wanted to keep the chapters going without section breaks like a Grateful Dead song or something. Like I really wanted the thing to just keep going and going and figure a way to swerve uh and and and, and weave together these, you know, multiple narratives that are happening at the same time. I mean you know, you're as just a simple example of one. 2011, you have these ongoing, you know, budget negotiations with the continuing resolution in the spring, and then the debt ceiling debacle in the summer. Uh, while there is also issues of terrorism and you and 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 Libya, uh, and then there's also the you know ramping up of a re-election campaign, and then there's the story of the Republican side happening at that time. So you have to figure a way to make that all smooth and and. and Make it seem like you want the reader to feel like you know he's along for the ride, um, and and uh, doing that's really difficult, especially doing that during, I would say two thousand nine, two thousand ten, right? Because it was just such a legislative heavy section combined with the economic crisis, and there was just so much going on to make that coherent. Uh, not oh, not to mention the transition. Uh, you know, building the government, selecting your cabinet secretaries, um, yeah, that was a huge challenge.
0: Yeah, well, f- fair to say, um, it's definitely a long, strange trip that you that you identify. Um, yeah. Who'd you like? Who'd you like talking to?
1: Mm. I um, I thought that I mean, a lot of people were actually really delightful to speak with. It's not like uh, it's not like people were. We're like bad to talk to. I mean, well, I
0: want to ask you about the bad ones too. I, sure, I definitely, sure, sure. I definitely well, want I to hear. Could, it. I mean,
1: I could give you something, but but like, let me think. But like, but off the top of my head, the economic advisors,
0: Austin uh, I found the
1: most fascinating. And I was, and maybe it's because I wasn't expecting it. I mean, you know, I got into. Um, how I found myself like making a living on like writing and reporting and make, getting an English major was probably because, once upon a time, I hated math and science. Um, so I never expected that I would like find something having to do with numbers interesting, but uh, maybe I'm just getting old. But the ways in which these guys, and I believe they were all guys, I didn't talk to Christina Romer, who was a senior yeah, economic she, advisor at the beginning of the administration, yeah. but um, they were all just uh, really articulate and uh, passionate and, and colorful in the ways in which they described either uh, the 2010 tax bill or you know the debt ceiling negotiations or this uh, sequester. I mean, all of that uh, I, I was I was really fascinated by, and uh, and the ways in which they were kind of sharing it with me.
0: Austin Goolsbee, I believe, I think he's. T- I think I had a conversation with him at, at one point. I think he did work or, or did did uh, fun time as a stand-up comedian, and you probably have seen his videos. I mean, you know, he was a, a chief economic advisor. You spoke with him. He's in the book. Um, he's a funny guy.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's on he's on Hannity a lot too. I mean, he's he's just a he's just an entertaining yeah. yeah like you said. Just, well, I just think really he just likes.
0: I, I think he goes on there. I think he just likes the sport of it of uh, yeah, of, yeah. of going on Hannity. So, um, uh, and then David Axelrod seemed to give you a great deal. I mean, obviously, Chicago historian, you know, because of his journalism background, um, political historian of Chicago and the nation. He, he seemed to give you a lot of excellent context. Was that a good conversation for you?
1: Yeah, I felt so, too. Uh, I, I felt that he uh, really, you know, without going below the belt and, you know, for – if, say, there were like any grievances that he may have had with coworkers, I'm not saying he did. I'm just saying that, like, if that was a case, you know, he kept it classy in that way. And maybe he just, maybe if there was that, that he's over it, you know, people just sort of get over it. But, but he was really open in a way that you wouldn't quite expect, right? I mean, he was open about it, it really seemed like you know the white house just kind of chewed him up right yeah. um and he was much better out on the campaign trail that's where he belongs you know um yeah i was really i really found that
0: remarkable
1: so uh, in too. terms
0: of in terms of openness and and transparency how did you find talking with political folks as compared to the other industries that you've done oral histories on were they were they less forthcoming were they harder to kind of open up do they play it closer to the vest in in politics or was it the opposite they wanted to tell their stories and and wanted to give you more and and did it surprise you maybe to the upside
1: I'd hate to give you a boring answer but this is the truth uh it's really hard to generalize you know the political people versus the Hollywood people versus comedy people versus media people and how they behave. I mean, I, I suppose we, there are stereotypes that exist for a reason in all those respective industries. But in my experience with putting together the oral histories I've had, I, I can't give you an honest answer and say like, Oh, the political people were far more protective than the Hollywood people because that's just not what I experienced. There were certainly policy people, uh, that, you know, Brian, East, for instance, who, you know, lives and breathes this, I mean, he, we had a couple of conversations, and, you know, he was more than happy to dig into, uh, you know, his work on uh, the climate accord, uh, or another example might be, you know, uh, who would be, who would be another example, so, you know, Steve Ratner with uh, with the autos, mm. I mean, it, you mm. know, these are people that, just like, that's what they did every second of the day, Gene Sperling is another one, uh, with economics, like... So it's it's hard to give you a blanket statement on that. I mean, if anything, if looking back and not to get off Obama, but when I did the Die Hard oral history, which is just like a it's just an ebook I did two years ago, um, I, I think if I were to generalize, I would say my experience was like the Hollywood crowd felt more anti media than others Mm. not necessarily the ones i spoke with but the ones i attempted to speak with like producers and such because it it's almost as if and now i'm just speculating but it's almost as if you sense that to them you know they have dvd extras for this kind of stuff and uh you know they don't need me that that's the that was just a sense i got of that specific crowd
0: got it um and and we'll have it we'll do a separate uh podcast on the debate Um, is Die Hard the greatest Christmas movie of all time? Because I'm I'm sure that you've seen that, uh, um, debate on Twitter. uh,
1: I believe the debate is whether or not it is a Christmas movie. Ah, I'm happy
0: to jump in. Oh, okay. Well, we'll we'll hold it aside. I actually just happened to see Jake Tapper tweeted something uh, yesterday, I think, saying it's the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Maybe he was just, uh, trolling, uh, trolling the whole discussion. Anyhow, we'll, we'll, we'll save that one for, for another pod. Um, Did you try to get Obama?
1: Interesting question. Um, When I first... The first time I was in contact with the Obama White House, they reached out to me. Hmm. This was probably eight months into my project. You know, they got word that I'm, you know, there's a guy going around, you know, calling up 200 of your former coworkers. you know, let's sniff his leg a little bit. There was nothing, like, sinister about it. I think they were just doing proper protocol. Um, I didn't... You know, that, I, that was just a, just a one-time thing. It's not like Obama knew about it. But certainly after January 20th, the post-presidency office uh, and I got in touch. I don't remember who connected with who. But they were very helpful in hooking me up with people whose contact info I couldn't find or maybe they you know, could put in a good word for me, whatever. So they were great with that, as was the Obama Foundation. Um, as far as getting POTUS himself, I do remember one of the phone calls, uh, one of the people in the office asked me, you know, are you interested in speaking with the president? And I believe the question was framed not in a way where they were offering him to me, but they were just kind of, again, just feeling me out and seeing what I expected. Um, which leads me to believe that had I been persistent and, and asking that I probably could have gotten something, it's, po- it's possible that that door was open. Now, here's the thing that would tick off my editor if he knew, which I eventually he's going to figure this out if I keep saying this in interviews. But uh, I actually didn't want Obama for the book.
0: Hmm.
1: I know that sounds weird.
0: Yeah, why? Why?
1: Because um, his presence would have added, in my opinion, such a weight that it would have just, it's like a giant cannonball just jumping in the deep end of the pool and splashing everyone out of the damn thing. That it would have sort of, I, I just, that's just a sense, and I could be wrong, that it, it would have just blown away everyone else around him in a way where it's hard to pay attention to what other people are saying. I also, you know, if if you've, I mean, I'm not saying you should, or do whatever you want, but if you read my other oral histories, you'll see that, you know, Bruce Willis is not in the Die Hard oral history. David Letterman is not in the Letterman oral history. Mm. It, it, it follows this kind of format. Remember this uh, story that Gay Talese wrote for Esquire decades ago called uh, Frank Sinatra's Got a Cold. Um, it wasn't an oral history, but you know, it's this famous story where you know Gay Talese is sent, I believe, this hotel in L.A. To interview uh frank and frank's got a cold so he hangs around the hotel he interviews the uh you know the shine guy who took care of frank's shoes he interviews the bellhop he interviews the band members and he still paints a picture of a portrait of this guy's life without even having talked to him and, and um it, it makes frank's presence larger than if he was actually in it uh and it helps kind of breathe life into all the characters that surround him in this universe. And I don't know, there's something about that I find fascinating, and, and I've always kind of kind of followed that formula. So,
0: so what's your take on Obama having spoken with all the people around him? And, and being, I, I guess, my guess is that you have obviously some political interest, but you're not a pure play political person. So so you had a sense surely of Obama, like we all do from, you know, his having been president for eight years and following his career and following what was going on in the country. But, But one, what was your take on him from the people, from talking to all the people around him? And then two, how did that take either confirm or differ from what we all get about Obama or got about Obama just in the day-to-day coverage of him?
1: Uh, that is a two-part question, and I will answer the first part first, which is to say that um, I'm not a political person in the way that I do not live in Washington, D.C., and I'm not a member of a press corps down there, and I'm not hanging out with, you know, people that work for pundits on NBC at, at hotel bars or whatever the stereotypes are, um when i did letterman i wasn't a late night expert when i did gawker i wasn't a media columnist when i did Die Hard, i wasn't necessarily you know an expert on uh, the 80s action genre i you know it doesn't mean that i was completely uninformed on all those topics but i think that the format is served better when you have someone who is able to approach it with you know sort of clean goggles um you run the risk of being naive right and and someone sort of trying to pull a fast one on you but but i mean if you've done it enough more times than not you you end up kind of getting all the info you need and um... and and so i think that really serves the story well you know when i did like the gawker oral history had i been a media person who had gone to parties with all these bloggers back in two thousand six or whatever that would have tainted the story in a way that wouldn't have served those who want to read about it. That, does that make sense? Um, I mean, that, what I'm basically describing is what a reporter's sort of <laughs> position should be, right, mm-hmm. when approaching mm-hmm. a subject. Um, now, when you talk about, like, my take on Obama, it's <clears> – <throat> I I mean, unfortunately, I, I wish I could get something more specific from you, but generally speaking uh, – I mean I have no qualms about hiding my bias. I mean I certainly think that he was the most accomplished democratic president since what, FDR. Uh not, and and I think that you know anyone who tries to be sort of above the partisan fray, which is impossible, um would recognize that he was the adult in the room who tried to keep the republic together and he did in, in in a number of ways in a number of ways it didn't happen and um, but I certainly and I don't know if this is kind of an answer to a different question but I'm going to include it because that's kind of where I'm, my mind is going is that when I approached the project um, I really you know I, w- I really didn't approach it as like an advocate. I mean, I would I would dare you to find spots where you can kind of like see me with pom-poms in the background, you know? I I I really wanted to approach it in in as an objective way possible. The the goal was to create a book for people who just love to devour the nerdy political books, right? Um I mean, that that's what I want. Uh Someone uh, asked me if uh, you know this was a this was a, uh, a Valentine to Obama, and I just kind of mm. like found that so funny because
0: yeah, no, that's that's not how I would characterize it.
1: Well, it's just it wasn't a goal, but you know, I mean, I'm going to get that no matter what. People are going to say that no matter what, but like I, once they read the book, they would see that's not the case. I just think that like if you could imagine like trying to write a book that is a valentine to obama that would just be so boring
0: yeah yeah (laughs) so so let me pick up on one of the things we were just talking about the partisan fray and obama's position as quote the the adult in the room and because that is a theme you start the book um with this great reggie love quote and and it's a point that that picks up throughout the book we feel it when um you describe the uh, meeting on inauguration day uh, night, I guess Jan twenty two thousand nine. That meeting with uh, all the Republican representatives, Paul Ryan, Pete Hoekstra, and others are there. But but the this the sense of the the, the Reggie Love quote at the top um, is uh, aside from being the only African American in the Senate, he was especially when he was running for president promoted as the one who would help bridge the divide between the right and the left. And I read that, and it brought me back, of course, to that time. And that was the sense of, of what Obama would be. Obama is the bridge. And and yet we see in your book, and we know it from everything else that we've read as well, but we see throughout the obstruction on the Republican side and then the questions. And this is, my, this is what I'm wondering. Um, did Obama – did he do enough – to create that bridge could he ever have done enough to create that bridge d- you 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 put a lot of detail in there about the republican obstructionism d- did you d- what was the sense that you got from the people that you spoke to about obama as a bridge did was that did he do the best he could did, did was he never going to succeed did he kind of fail because we're more divided than ever now what, what was the sense you got
1: that's a complicated one right uh yeah as you mentioned he campaigned uh and you know you make the argument policy wise like there's evidence that he behaved this way in office too that he he, he attempted to transcend uh the partisanship and and uh yeah and, and 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 you know always sort of have this uh this permanent posture of you know sitting at the table and saying hey uh you know, I'm open for business on all these deals, while on the other side of the table they were always negotiating in bad faith. At the time, you know, they didn't know that. And I say they, the White House and say like the Senate in the case of the healthcare bill, truly believed that that something bipartisan could be achieved. Um and, you know, that that didn't happen, um, you know, and, and even when Boehner took over as Speaker of the House, I think there still was this belief that, well, now that the Republicans control a house, uh, they'll behave differently because they have to be responsible for governing now. And that still didn't happen. Uh, when you talked about the dinner on January 20th, 2009, yeah, you're referring to uh, the caucus room, the steakhouse. Yes, yes. In, Eric uh,
0: Cantor, Kevin McCarthy, Paul Ryan, yeah. Jim DeMint, there are a bunch of folks there. Yes. That's yeah, the yeah.
1: One. Yeah, it's this like mythical dinner where like, you know, all these Republicans get together and kind of plot to to, to drag their heels on every single thing that mm-hmm. Obama did. So, um, you know, did he do everything he could to attempt to, uh, to bridge a divide? Yes, but the question is really more on further on the left on the spectrum that's worth talking about, which is, you know, should Obama have – well – to say should he have recognized it sooner i mean that's a separate question but once he had recognized that this was the case should he have just gone ahead and just shoved whatever he could legislation wise down you know down america's throat and deal with the fact that in the year 2018 people looking back could say, yes, it was Obama that divided the country. It wasn't the Republicans, because look at what he did, all this aggressive, a more aggressive health care bill, for instance, or, you know, more money in the Recovery Act, which couldn't have happened, but let's just play along with this hypothetical, uh, you know, figured a way to make – well, the immigration bill wouldn't have gone through in 2010, but – you hear my point that, like, what if they had ramped it up even harder, hypothetically, and just done what they could and, rec- and saved time, could recognize that they were never going to be able to do business with Republicans? Um, you know, that's that's the question worth asking, and, and that's the parlor, parlor game I like to play. Um, and I go back and forth on a number of issues with that. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of where my head's at.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I'm curious as well – did folks get specific or even quasi-critical on that question of, at some point, should he just have realized a lot more, you know, I'm I'm playing a, a, a you know, the deck is stacked in terms of the obstruction. They, they aren't going to go with, you know, forward with me on anything. Um, obviously, that's, that is the big debate. Um, what did you, from those closest to Obama who you spoke to, what did you feel— That they were feeling. Did they feel frustration? Do they feel frustration? Do you think over that? Or do they feel perhaps more like, no, you know what? That's just, that is who Obama is. He's the bridge guy. And Reggie Love said it at the beginning. And, you know, we, we heard it in the convention speech in 2004. And you talk about that, um, as well. And that just is who he is. It just, what, what was the thermometer on frustration that you heard or didn't hear from those closest to him on that topic?
1: I mean, it's both, right? Like, yes. To, to answer your question, when you look at the fact that he didn't put in a recess appointment for Merrick Garland, you know, in his final months in office, uh, or that he didn't, you know, figure a way to, you know, uh, sign an executive order that could take the entire Pacific Ocean off the table for for drilling, as opposed to just like regions in the Arctic and, and near Canada you know, if he, if he went this like super lefty way that if he went ahead, let's say instead of, what did he commute? Something like six, 700 sentences of prisoners toward the end. It was somewhere in that ballpark. What if he did 7,000, right? I mean, sure. Um, but the fact is, um, he, he didn't do those things because I mean, this is who he was. He, he, it's hard. I don't want to call him a centrist. I don't think that's fair to him. um, I think Bill Clinton kind of owns that label for a long, long time, and those are two very different presidencies. But I I certainly believe that he did have this sort of pragmatic view in how he believed that the sort of chief executive of the republic should behave and be responsible for all Americans and their interests. Um, Now, having said all of that, have I spoken to members, you know, uh, participants in the oral history, you know, after the fact, you know, on background or just in in emails or phone calls, uh, since watching the unraveling of Trump and and watching you know how much more we've learned about the the uh, Russia probe, I mean, of course, you know, th- like these are real lives we're talking about, right? This is this isn't a game. I mean, should more have happened uh, in 2016? to uh, you know, let the American public know about um, you know, the Kremlin and its possible connection to the Trump campaign. I mean, people will tell you, hell yes, even if it looked like the White House had a thumb on the scales. I mean, you see what's happening today, and, and I mean, it's no joke.
0: No, it's not. And it comes through the book and it comes through the conversations that you had. Brian, thank you. Thank you for your time and uh, really fascinating format and uh, series of conversations that you brought together into a uh, really terrific read. Thank you.
1: Thanks for reading it. And uh, thanks for having me on your show.
0: That was my conversation with Brian Abrams. Want more for Brian? A reminder to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It has bonus insights from him on the question, based on interviews for his book, what would you want to ask President Obama now? My thanks to Brian for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.